stand and we will read the scriptures together. Chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another, and what do you have that you did not receive? Now if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already full, you are already rich, you have reigned as kings without us, and indeed I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death, For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We've been made as the filth of the world and the offscouring of all things until now. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Let's pray. Lord, think of what Martin Luther said. Let the man who would hear God, hear God speak, read the Holy Scriptures. Lord, we want to hear you this morning. As we read, we recognize your authority and your power over us, Lord, that 1 Corinthians 4 is for us today. Lord, that you want to train us and teach us and equip us. Lord, you want to correct us and rebuke us. God, you want to comfort us. And would you do that today? Would you press these truths into our hearts? May there not be one person in this room who says, man, that that just, there's nothing there for me. Lord, it's for us. It's for us this morning. We pray that as we've read so much in 1 Corinthians, that the preaching and the teaching wouldn't be of wisdom of words or the wisdom of men, but in demonstration of the Holy Spirit and power. We pray for that today, God. 
Lord, that you would just get people's eyes off of Rory, that they just wouldn't see Rory. They would see you, Lord. They would hear you and, and hear your care for them this morning as you challenge and as you comfort, as you do your work. We worship you in the studying of the scriptures, and we desire to hear you speak, so we study them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles on, you keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And now turn back to Acts chapter 18. It's been a few weeks now since we started the book of 1 Corinthians. And so we want to remember who the Corinthians were. A bit of the culture they were in and a bit of Paul's relationship to them. Acts chapter 18 verse 1 it says, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them, when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But it's a question of words and names and your own law. Look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Galileo took no notice of these things. And so we have this incredible beginning to a church in Corinth, starting out in fire, starting out in persecution, as Paul, compelled by the Holy Spirit, opens his mouth to persuade the Jews about the gospel. And he's immediately persecuted about it. He's, you know, he, he says, you know what, I'm, I'm done with the Jews. And now I'm really, I'm going to hear the Lord that my ministry is to the Gentiles. And so he walks out of the synagogue, kind of shaking the dust off his garments and saying, the judgment is on you. You've had your chance. And he goes next door to Justice's house. And revival begins there as Justice is saved. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, is saved. Just an incredible church plant, an incredible church start with the refiner's fire of persecution going on. An exciting time to be a part of. If you've ever been part of a church plant in this way, you know it's, it's thrilling to be a part of something like that. Even the persecution, uh, you just see that, that when bad things are happening, it, it means, man, that, that people are talking and they're aware of what's happening. 
And no, it seems now that the honeymoon is over. The honeymoon is over as we're reading 1 Corinthians. And Paul, if you, if you remember the last verse of what we read in 1 Corinthians, he says, do you guys want me to come with a rod of correction? Or in the spirit of gentleness, and, and, and you know, there's just this correction that we see in this letter, and we begin to really get into it now by chapter 4. We'll see it even more severely by chapter 5. But one thing that, it's one of the first corrections that Paul addresses in this letter to this church in Corinth, is that there's pride welling up within the Corinthian church. It's a group of people who think that they've got it all. That spiritually, they're healthy, wealthy, and wise. That they need nothing else. And in that, they begin to become prideful and puffed up. And we see that they begin to to get clicky. Or become sectarianistic. Where they would say, hey, I'm of Paul. He's my homie. He's my apostle. Well, I'm of Apollos. And you guys stink. And well, I'm of Peter or Cephas. And then you got the people that are, you know, I'd probably be in this camp. Well, I'm of Christ, you know. We'd all be in that camp, I'm sure. But it starts to cause division and quarreling and schisms over who's the most honored servant of God. These factions broke out in the Corinthian church. And that's what Paul had addressed last week in 1 Corinthians 3 and what he goes into even more in 1 Corinthians 4. He addresses how people are to regard the ministers of the Lord. And we see that, that and you'll remember from our church series on elders and leadership, that Paul tells Timothy, man, an elder is to be given double honor. Uh, he's to be uh, given respect and honor and even financial honor. Those that especially labor in the word and in doctrine. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 speaks of just a submissive heart that we're to have to the leadership that God has placed over the church. But never is it to divide into factions and, or even worship of these men as if one is better than another. So let's gather around this guy. That guy stinks. This guy's talented. That guy's got nothing on him. And so we are of this man or this individual. There can be towards the minister of the Lord two different things and two different polarizations. You can have harmful adulation, or on the other end, you can have hurtful denigration. You can have on one side this harmful adulation saying, these men could never do anything wrong. It's not a good heart to have. We need to be as Bereans and search the scriptures. We need to examine character of the men that are over us. And on the other end, though, you've got this disdain for the people or contempt for the servants of the Lord, saying these guys can never do anything right. Both are wrong hearts, wrong attitudes. And so Paul addresses that in this chapter. And he says in verse 1, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. How are you to look at the servants and the ministers and the pastors and the leaders that God has placed over you? Let a man consider us. Two things. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now the word servants, it's not diakonos, speaking of a deacon or even those that would just emulate a deacon. It's not the word doulos that we've studied recently, a bondservant, someone that's willingly given their lives to serving the Lord. No, this is a third word that's used in the scriptures describing a servant, and it's huperites. 
Huperites means an under rower in a giant boat or a galley slave. This guy, this Huperites, is an underling. He's a servant. He is an unseen servant who would be, if you've ever seen Ben-Hur, then you've got the picture in your mind of these guys chained to an oar and just rowing. And maybe they've got a a two-year lifespan at best. And their job, just to row. And if that ship gets into any form of battle and they have to get up to ramming speed, their life's over. (laughs) Their life's done. They got some really impressive bicep and tricep and shoulder muscles, though. You wouldn't believe it. But they row. You see it on Ben-Hur, right? They row and they work and they answer to those on deck who command and who lead and who have the beating of the drum that sets the pace. These unseen servants provide the movement of this giant ship, provide incredible power to the vessel, chained to the oars in the galley, two columns of men rowing to the cadence of the chief overseer, keeping the pace by using a whip. No say in the speed to which they'll travel or how hard they'll work. Their only job is to follow orders. Welcome to Christian ministry. (laughs) Paul says, let a man consider us as galley slaves, as hooperites. But you know what? God uses the galley slave. God uses the man and the woman who will be content to serve in obscurity, to serve behind the scenes, to serve in the place that is lowest to the ocean floor, the unseen. That's who God uses. In fact, Jesus says that if you're faithful in the little things, if you're faithful in the unseen things, I'll make you ruler over more. If you want to be involved in ministry, At any level, and I mean we're talking the entry level job or position, the middle level or the upper level job, you need to have a mindset that is that of a servant. In our culture, somehow the word minister minister has reversed that and they become very pompous and arrogant and they rule over the people with a rod of iron and they take massive amounts of money and they get themselves crowns and giant rings and they say, bow down and kiss. That's not the scriptural definition of a minister on any level, let alone how Paul says, you look at us as galley slaves. You look at us as huperites. The assistant pastor uh, in Costa Mesa Calvary Chapel years ago, his name was Romain, Pastor Romain, and he was an ex-Marine drill sergeant. There's some fun stories that have come out of that church, uh, but he would often tell young pastors in his training that they needed to serve the Lord as if they were doing it in their underwear. That any time that they were being seen, imagine the people looking at you in your skivvies, You get the job done, you get it well, but you get out of the way so people aren't looking at you for too long. We don't want any glory as ministers of the Lord. We want to serve out, you know, behind the scenes. We want to be faithful behind the scenes. And as you're faithful behind the scenes, the Lord will make you ruler over many. And as you read the book of Acts, you read of a group of people, especially in chapter 6, that are content to serve tables, 
They're men who are full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom and of good report. And they are faithful men just serving tables. And within a matter of chapters, you read of these guys being sent out from the food kitchen and going out to various revivals that are taking place, leading these revivals, spurring people towards Jesus and having radical ministries to preach the gospel. One of these galley slaves, a man named Stephen, a servant, a, a table waiter, would end up becoming the first martyr in the church. So if you want to be a minister, you'd be content to serve underneath the deck. You'd be content to grab hold of the oar. So that is one thing that Paul says, consider us as that. Consider Apollos, who those of you who are over there saying, I'm of Apollos. Hey, you think of him as a galley slave. I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter galley slaves. Don't get puffed up about yourself over, you know, who these men are. They're servants. They're servants of the Lord. And then he also says, and stewards of the mysteries of God. A steward was a different type of servant. He was one who was employed within a large household or or estate to manage the day-to-day operations, the domestic concerns He would supervise the other servants. He would collect rent. He would keep accounts. Everything that he had as a a responsibility was given to him by his master. Colossians chapter 1 verse 25, Paul speaks of a stewardship given to him over the people. Stewardship of the mysteries of God, we read. This stewardship is to preach or proclaim or herald the deep truths about God. That's what this stewardship is. It's over these mysteries, over these secret things of God. And we've read and we've studied in 1 Corinthians so far, what are these secret things? It's the mystery of the gospel. We have this stewardship to proclaim the good news of God's redemption of mankind. In the Old Testament, it was a truth that was concealed. It's there as you read it, but in the New Testament, it's revealed. It's fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it continues now through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's a wonderful thing to be a steward of the mysteries of God. Josephus, a Jewish historian for the Romans back uh, about the time the, the... the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem, he would write that the Jewish religion would make known to its people all the mysteries of their religion, while the pagan people would conceal and only reveal parts to a select few. That's not the stewardship that ministers of the word have in the Christian faith. I mean, we want everybody to know the deep things of God. We want a Bible in every hand and we want to expound the scriptures to them and train them and teach them so that they can go and train and teach people. The pulpit is asked to be used for many different things, for many different agendas, for entertainment purposes and this and for that. But we read here that, man, the, the purpose of the pulpit And the purpose of the preacher is to herald and preach the mysteries of God that men might find life. So, a minister of the Lord, and we're not talking just pastors here. We're talking any level of ministry to the Lord, which we all should be involved at at some level or another. They're to be regarded as galley slaves 
or those entrusted with the mystery of the gospel. The congregation is justified to believe that their pastor is a servant. It's true. But the congregation would be unjustified in viewing themselves as his master. Jonathan Edwards wrote from Massachusetts, I am happy and I am prepared to be your servant, but you must know that you are not my master. The steward answers to the headmaster, to the chief master, the one he'll give an account to, Jesus Christ. Both the servant and the congregation need to know whom they're ministering. In verse 2, we read of the steward's job that it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. Faithful or trustworthy. As they expound the mysteries of God, what is needed from this minister? Is it creativity or flamboyance or innovation? Is he to have a great sense of humor or a great personality? Is he supposed to have a way with words? Biblically, he's to be faithful. That's the characteristic that Paul was looking for, faithfulness. We'll read later, and we read this morning of Timothy, that he is a faithful minister. We read of Epaphras in Paul's epistles and Tychicus, men that were faithful, men that Paul could trust. In Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we'll study it this Wednesday night, we see who the most faithful steward ever was. It's Jesus Christ. He says in 3, 1 of Hebrews, Consider Jesus Christ, who was faithful to him who appointed him. We look to Jesus as the example, the one who is ultimately faithful in his stewardship of laying out the mystery of the good news of the gospel. In church circles, the worth of a person's ministry is often measured in his programs that he puts on, or nowadays in the media that they use, or what their church website looks like, or if they're on a radio station, or this or that or the other, and uh, entertainment value, this and that. And and really we see it comes down to one word, faithfulness. I was taught by my pastor that when you're appointing leaders, you look for fat leaders. Men who are faithful. Men and women who are available. Men and women who are teachable. Three things that are important. and, And the important thing there is their faithfulness that we read from Paul this morning in the context. Luke chapter 12, let's all turn there. In verse 42, we have a great admonishment from Jesus on how to be a faithful steward and what he looks at in his stewards. Luke 12, 42. This is the third book of the New Testament. So you Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the Lord says in verse 42, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his master will make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if the servant says in his heart, My master delays his coming. And begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink with the drunk. 
The master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and at an hour when he's not aware and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed on him, they will ask the more. The Lord has entrusted us with a stewardship. Pastors have their stewardship. Deacons have their stewardship. Servants in the church in various capacities, they have their stewardship. And we're waiting for our master's return. And it's the wicked servant that says in his heart, my master delays his coming, so I'm going to slack off in my stewardship. I'm going to be unfaithful. Paul says, hey, it's required in a steward that one be found faithful. As we teach the scriptures in this church and we look at in depth the entirety of the context of scripture, we know that much has been given to us. We've been entrusted with an incredible mission, an incredible ministry, both to the Lord, both to the church, and to the world. Let's not slack in our stewardship. Either way, it needs to be done, Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians 9. If you're forced to do it, you're entrusted with a stewardship. If if you do it on your own and willingly, there's a reward for you. So whether you're a greeter in the church whether you're an usher, whether you're in the coffee-making ministry, whether you're a custodian or you serve in the nursery or the children's ministry, or you're, you're cleaning toilets, you're dusting light fixtures, or you're replacing light bulbs, whatever it might be, be faithful in that. And look to Jesus, the most faithful steward, faithful in his master's house. Let's look at verse 3. Paul says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. And by the way, we're back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. And so we know that the Corinthian people, and it's just sad to see what's happening there. You know, this great testimony from Acts 18 of how the church started. And then we'll see in in this book of 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians, these guys were always giving Paul a hard time. The whole chapter, a whole book of, of 2 Corinthians is him defending his apostleship to these people. And he says, man, he's just like, with me, it's a small thing that I should be judged by you. Now the word judged here in scripture, there's a few different words that are judge. And we want to make sure we understand them. Here, the word is anacrino. And it means to be examined. It means to be investigated in a court, kind of law and order style, cross-examined, to be criticized. And Paul says, man, for, for you guys to criticize me as your father in the faith, that's a pretty small thing. In a human court, which speaks of man's day in court, rather than the Lord's day in court. We studied that last week, the Lord's day of judgment. He says, it's a very little thing to kind of go through your guys' scrutiny. I'm really not worried about it. Paul is not saying here that he despises their judgment, but in comparison with the Lord's, it was nothing to be worried about. 
Paul didn't think of himself as being above examination, nor did he would th- think that he was above self-criticism or being aware of his own ministry. A lot of people read that and say, and say like, oh, there's no examination that's ever going to take place or should ever take place in the church. Not what Paul is speaking of here. In fact, if you look at the context of the book, what Paul is speaking about is the Corinthians having a wrong form of judgment towards them because they had wrong motives and they were judging him based on wrong things. They were assessing hidden matters of Paul's heart that they didn't know and that Paul himself didn't even really know. In fact, he says there, I do not even judge myself. I don't even judge myself in these matters. We're never good judges of ourselves. Proverbs tells us that, that there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's the way of death. The Lord moved me last night as I was sitting on the porch, watching the sun go down, breathing in a lot of smoke in the air. And I just felt the Lord lead me to Psalm 139. We might read it by the end of the, the day. We'll see. But it just speaks of it's the Lord that searches the depths of our heart. It's the Lord that looks at the inner man. And the psalmist would say, so search my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me. Is there any integrity here, Lord? Search it. Search the deep things. The Lord knows the words that are going to come out of our mouth before they come out of our mouth. So Paul says, man, I'm concerned to stand before that judge. That's where my main concern lies. At the end of the day, the issue for Paul was not people walking out of his sermons and giving him a 10 or a 6 or a 4 or a 3 or your sermon was so poor, you're not not even on the scale. He was worried about, is the Lord considering me faithful in my expounding of the scripture? Is this faithful to the Lord? In fact, Paul says to Timothy, be diligent and study to show yourself approved a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I think it was Scott Wood who texted me yesterday, what are you doing? What's happening? And I was like, man, I'm plowing straight lines in the word so that I can bring a good message tomorrow. And that's what that word means, rightly divide the word. It means plow straight lines. Because I'm going to stand before the judge. And, and I don't mean to be rude, but I really don't care If you guys give me a three on a Sunday morning or a 10, or that was fantastic in your personality, none of that matters when I'm standing before the judge and he's judging my stewardship. And if I was faithful and I pray to God, I'm faithful. I don't get nervous so much anymore about standing up in front of crowds. That's not what worries me. I worry if I'm representing the Lord rightly because there is truth. And one who teaches will receive the stricter judgment. Verse 4 says, For I know of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. And so Paul kind of digs into what, okay, if I did look at my heart, I think everything's good. I think, I think I'm good. You know, I think I've been faithful in this ministry. There's been no ministerial unfaithfulness. But that's not why I'm justified, and that's not why I'm acquitted. The Lord does that. The Lord is the dejudicator, the chief judge. Verse 5 says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. 
then each one's praise will come from God. So now we have another word for judge. And this is why it's so important as we're studying the scriptures to do language studies and to look at definitions of words because we would read a word like judge and in this passage, in this verse and say, see, we're told not to judge anything before it's time. Well, it's a different word. See, Paul says before, I'm not concerned about your cross-examining me. And cross-examining needs to go on within the church. We need to judge fruit, and we'll look at that in a second. But he says here in verse 5, judge nothing before the time. The word judge is crino, and it means condemn or damn somebody. And it speaks of that eternal to hell. To hell with this, to hell with them. That's crino. The word crino is the same word that's used in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. And you all know it. It's every American's favorite memory verse. And it says this, judge not that you be not judged. And how many times have you ever gone to somebody and said, man, I noticed that you're living with your girlfriend and that's not good. And, and, you know, and you're sexually active and that's not good. And I'm calling you to repent to repent of sexual immorality and to repent of, of not being above reproach and having an appearance of evil and giving opportunity of the flesh. You need to repent of that. And how many times, don't judge me. Get out of here. Don't judge me. Who are you to judge me? You know, or someone's come to you and said, hey, you know, this or that. And I just want to encourage you in this and judge not. Doesn't the Bible say judge not? It does. But the word is crino. When that brother lovingly comes and exhorts you towards holiness, that you'd represent Christ well, that you'd represent the church well, that you wouldn't let leaven and poison come into the church that's going to poison everybody, that's a good thing. That's a loving thing. That's something that's told, commanded of us in Scripture. That brother or sister is not to, however, come and damn you. That's the Lord's work. That's the Lord's work on that final day. He says, with whatever judgment you judge, this is Jesus saying in Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, with what condemnation you condemn people, you will be condemned. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And then he says, why do you look at your speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, hey, let me remove the speck from your eye, but look, I've got a plank in my own eye. Hypocrite, Jesus says. First, remove the plank from your own eye. Then you'll be able to go and remove the teeny little sliver from theirs. And so don't condemn. But then it says in Matthew 7, 15, this is in the same chapter, that we're to beware of false prophets and wolves and we're to judge the fruit on their tree. And if someone is saying, hey, I'm an apple tree for Jesus. But you examine them in light of the scripture and you see, no, you're a thorn tree that's masquerading as an apple tree. You may address that for protection of the Lord's name in this earth, for protection of the church, for protection of the sheep. This individual could be a wolf. And so you lovingly correct them. The Lord is the one who is fully capable to decide and to condemn He's going to look, Paul says, at the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsel of men's hearts. The judgment that Paul faced, all believers are going to face. And it's one not of condemnation, 
Because our condemnation was put on Christ. We, we studied this last week. Do you remember? Are some things coming back? The judgment that we as Christians will go to is a judgment of rewards. Similar to a, an Olympic game. You know, you do your backhand spring and 10, you know, or two, you know. It's that type of judgment and, and God examines the works of the Christians and see what their motivation was behind it. Was it for selfish purposes? Was it for the glory of God? And they'll be rewarded accordingly. We studied that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. As J.B. Phillips says in his great translation of the New Testament, the moral of this is that we should make no hasty or premature judgments. And that's what the Corinthians were doing against Paul and, or, or against Apollos or against Peter. And that is what happens in the church today as well. Let's leave the deep judgments to the Lord. Verse 6, now these things, brethren, I have figured... Are we all back there again? 1 Corinthians 4, 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against another. We're to let the word be our authority. And you be careful too, church, today, not to think beyond what is written. Go to the scriptures. Don't have a conversation with somebody and say, well, doesn't it say somewhere this? Hey, you go to that place. You find it out. You Google it and find the reference or go to BibleGateway.com or something like that. Find the reference and know where it is in your Bible so that you're quoting the verse rightly and in context. No more, well, doesn't it say somewhere, you know, and then we make a church doctrine about it. It's like, that's not at all what that even says or what it meant or anything. You gotta be so careful. Let the word be our authority. Don't go beyond what is written and don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Apply it rightly. If you do this, there won't be these clicks. One man said, in his old school language, revere the silence of holy writ. I like that. Have respect for what the word says. Don't add to it. That'll stop you from being puffed up on behalf of one against another. Verse seven, for who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Hey, what makes you think you're better than anybody else? What makes you think you should get more accolades or more popularity? Why, why should you be the elite in the church? Everything that you've been given, you've been given. It's a matter of grace, not of works. And why should you be puffed up about this pastor? He's just someone that's been given a gift. Don't get puffed up about that pastor or this ministry or that ministry or Calvary Chapel. Don't get puffed up about it. It is God's grace from A to Z that we'll even be here next week as a church. It's because of what he's done. So don't get puffed up on behalf of one or another. You remember that you received these things. Romans puts it this way in the J.B. Phillips translation. Try to have an, a sane estimate of yourself. Let's not go insane thinking above what we are. Let's have a real view of who we are and we'll realize we're nothing. We're sinners saved by grace. We're beggars who just know where the bread is and we're telling everybody else to come and eat with us. It's ridiculous to boast as the Corinthians were being smug 
and satisfied with where they were at in their spirituality and their leadership. If they had put an advertisement in the Corinthian yellow pages back in the day, they would have said, come enjoy a successful, lively, mature, and effective ministry at at the church in Corinth. And there would have been a measure of that. Paul does say, you're rich in every spiritual gift. They were using them wrong, but they had a lot of spiritual gifts. There were some good things going on. But as you look closely at the church, you would have also have found on your first visit there that in chapter 5, there's incest going on in the church. In chapter 6, they're all suing each other. In chapter 7, there's a divorce rate that's about what it is today in America. And, you know, and it just goes on and on and on. They're misusing spiritual gifts. He says, don't be puffed up and think that you are so stinking wealthy and beautiful because you know what? You are still in need of a lot of grace. Reminds me of a pastor who asked his friend, hey, will you pray that I stay humble? And his friend replied, first, tell me what do you have to be proud about? (laughs) (laughs) Everything that we've been given, we've been given. It's grace, not by works. In fact, John the Baptist, a man who probably had a lot of reasons to totally get puffed up about himself, we would say, right? He realized, no. And he says in John chapter 3, verse 27, he says, A man can receive nothing unless it's first been given to him by heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I have said, I am not the Christ. I've just been sent before him. Every minister, every children's ministry worker, every worship leader, everybody who's serving Jesus in any capacity, I am not the Christ. Don't get your eyes on me as if I am. Well, I don't know how it got to be 11.30, but we're going to have the worship team come back up. Man, I had some good stuff. It's all done. I want to be honest with you guys. This was a tough chapter to study, and I was just getting into the part that I was really excited about. So, praying over... The application this morning, I'm going to read Psalm 139 as we get into worship. We want to have a sane estimation of ourselves as a church. And that's easy to do when there's 10 people showing up on a Sunday morning. You're kind of like, well, that's, that's good, but we released it, you know. Or you think that, that's a worldly estimation, right? But as people start to come, and it gets exciting, and we're adding rows in the middle of worship, and woohoo, yeah! And we're at the park, and we're proclaiming the gospel, and people are coming in, and they're hearing, and then writing, or calling, or communicating during the week of how they were ministered. We, we begin to kind of stand a little taller, walk with a little more spring in our step, you know? And we need to remember, man, we are just galley slaves. We're galley slaves. And we're stewards that a master has said, I'm entrusting you over this and you over this and you over this. And you know what? I'm the one that gives you any value because tomorrow I could take that stewardship away from you. We don't want to get puffed up. We want to be faithful in what's been entrusted to us. We also don't want to believe the lie that it's only paid pastors or staff that are to be ministers. If you are a born-again Christian this morning, you've been called into ministry in some capacity or another. You've been called to make disciples. You've been called to be a missionary in our community. 
You've been called to use the gifts that God has given you for the edification and the building up of this church. And you realize that it's just a gift. God's given me this. These people up here that have instruments, man, I really appreciate that they're just like, we're just using the gifts God's given us and we gotta be humbled by it because he could take it away. You know, one accident and slip with a knife. Better be careful. It's gone, right? They have a sane estimation of themselves and praise God for that. Our elders have a sane estimation of themselves. We want to continue that in the church. In Psalm 139, just like Paul said, man, I'm, I'm not judging even myself. The Lord's going to do that. He writes in the pastoral epistles that, you know, it's good to have assessment. It's good. There's character qualifications in a leader. Those things you look at. But the ultimate judge is the Lord. And if you want to just flip over there with me, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but there's a few things I, I highlighted last night as I was reading. Psalm 139. You guys can like strum or do something cool. Let's get in, let's get in the groove. Listen to this. Oh, that was just what I needed. This is a Psalm of David, and that's what he have, what he have done, right? Listen. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways, and there is not a word on my tongue. But behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. You've hedged me behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I'm going to jump down to the end of the chapter. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would stir on this congregation to be servants. And Lord, we thank you that you ask nothing of us that you yourself haven't already done. Lord, you say, hey, be considered as a galley slave. Be considered as a steward. But then you say, but look at me. Look at me. I was faithful in all my father's house. I was a faithful steward. I was obedient. Lord, we look to you as the perfect faithful steward. And Lord, you went low as a galley slave. You condescended to our level and you became a man. And you suffered and you were murdered. And you were put to death. And not just any death but the humiliating, excruciating death of the cross. Therefore, 
you were exalted and given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's required of a steward that one be found faithful. And Jesus, we look to you as the chief steward. You were faithful. Enable us, Lord God, to be faithful. The pastors of this church, Chad and Kevin and Aaron and myself, Lord God, keep us faithful. Lord, those that are having a desire, they heard the call. We need ushers. We need children's ministry. We need custodians. We need people that would coach and teach and disciple. Lord, that they would hear your call and they would be faithful. They would look to you, Lord. Lord God, protect us from a Corinthian mindset. I'm of Chuck Smith. I'm of John Piper. I'm a Matt Chandler. I'm of Tim Shattuck. I'm of Alistair Begg. I'm of Greg Laurie. I'm of John Corson. Lord, we are of Christ. We're of Christ. We thank you for the servants that you've taught us from. But Lord, we look to you. And Lord, as we come to the communion table this morning, we remember you as the most excellent servant. And as we close in worship, we're opening up the communion table and the elements that are there. There's a a cup of juice that is a symbol of the blood of Jesus. And there's a cracker that's a symbol of his body that was broken on behalf of your sins. And if you are in Christ Jesus today, come to the table to the symbol of Christ Jesus being in you, that you receive in your innermost being afresh this morning. Thank you for the blood, Lord. Thank you for your body broken and wounded and bruised and crushed on my behalf. And as you partake, you thank the Lord for what he's done. You thank the Lord for being that faithful servant who laid down his life. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.